Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for being here for another edition of the Show We Tell Reading Series. I'm very excited about uh, the readers we have scheduled today. Kay Graham, Stephanie Laterza, Kristen Candic Torres, uh, wonderful writers. Thanks so much for being here. And uh, I usually kick things off with a little bit of a reading. And uh, today I'm going to be reading one of my favorite writers. This is his birthday yesterday, which I actually didn't know until late in the day. I was like, wow. So I'm going to read um, a little excerpt here from Another Country by James Baldwin. Happy birthday, James Baldwin. And I, I, um, I felt like this, um, this passage right here actually really taught me a lot about writing. I, I read it about three or four years ago. And uh, the prose is amazing, but what it really taught me too is the prose was in service of a very important moment in the story. It wasn't just good for good sake, it was good for the story's sake, mind-blowing for the story's sake. So the proportion of the writing and the moment in the story uh, really added up, and that really taught me something about how to try to be a novelist. Um, so um, this is uh, Rufus in another country. He's a jazz drummer, and uh, he's, he's feeling low in uh, New York City. The train began to move, half empty now, and with each stop it became lighter. Soon the white people who were left look at him, looked at him oddly. He felt their stares, but he felt far away from them. You took the best, so why not take the rest? He got off at the station named for the bridge built to honor the father of his country and walked up the steps into the streets, which were empty. Tall parking buildings, lightless, loomed against the dark sky and seemed to be watching him, seemed to be pressing down on him. The bridge was nearly over his head, intolerably high, but he did not yet see the water. He felt it. He smelled it. He thought how he had never before understood how an animal could smell water, but it was over there, past the highway, where he could see the speeding cars. Then he stood on the bridge, looking over, looking down. Now the lights of the cars on the highway seemed to be writing an endless message writing with awful speed in a fine, unreadable script. There were muted lights on the Jersey Shore and here and there a neon flame advertising something somebody had for sale. He began to walk slowly to the center of the bridge, observing that from this height, the city which had been so dark as he walked through it seemed to be on fire. He stood at the center of the bridge and it was freezing cold. He raised his eyes to heaven. He thought, you bastard. You motherfucking bastard. Ain't I your baby too? He began to cry. Something in Rufus which could not break shook him like a rag doll and splashed salt water all over his face and filled his throat and his nostrils with anguish. He knew the pain would never stop. He could never go down into the city again. He dropped his head as though someone had struck him and looked down at the water. It was cold and the water would be cold. He was black and the water was black. He lifted himself by his hands on the rail, lifted himself as high as he could and leaned far out. The wind tore at him at his head and shoulders while something in him screamed, why, why? He thought of Eric, his straining arms threatened to break. I can't make it this way. He thought of Ida. He whispered, I'm sorry, Leona. And then the wind took him. He felt himself going over, head down. The wind, the stars, the lights, the water, all rolled together, all right. He felt a shoe fly off behind him. There was nothing around him, only the wind. All right, you motherfucking God almighty bastard. I'm coming to you. Amazing, 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 amazing. Um, okay, so, Kay Graham is a writer and editor based in NYC. Her work has been named a 2017 Best of the Net finalist and as a semi-finalist for both the fourth annual TAR Chapbook Series and the Gazing Green Press 2018 All-Genre Chapbook Contest. She is currently at work on a memoir about mental and physical fitness, family, and the distance, and, and I'm sorry, and the balance between holding on and letting go. For fun, she also writes fiction. Find her online at kgram.com. Thanks for being here, Kay.
water, but it's here. Um, I'm just going to dive in. Thanks to Matt. Thanks for being here. This is from an essay called Holding On Is. Be my arms and legs. You're strong. You can do it, Mom would say. Mom's body was small, fragile, needed time to move, move differently than other bodies. I always thought she was beautiful. She was. Blonde, blue-eyed, narrow nose, all symmetrical. Mom had a determined presence that demanded respect, and she had mastered the performance of a Eurocentric female beauty. Outfits were planned, makeup was worn, perfume was sprayed. We relate to everything. Sometimes she fell down. Mom was diagnosed with lingual muscular dystrophy, a rare and incurable neuromuscular disease, when she was 30 and pregnant with me. In our life together, she wasn't able to lift heavy objects, things like pots or pans or dog food bags, her own body. She couldn't run or dance or move very fast. She used a brown wooden cane, shiny wood, golden handle. When walking was too much, a wheelchair. I was her arms and legs. Elle was her arms and legs. We were good at being mom's limbs. Sometimes she held on to us when she walked and we took turns pushing her wheelchair. When she fell, we helped her back up. We loved mom, her body, went to her for comfort, to cry, to laugh, for attention. Who could listen better? Care more about our days, our lives, our future. Of course I miss her. She haunts me, or her pain does. Sometimes mom said she and dad divorced because he didn't like that she was sick. He didn't want a wife with muscular dystrophy. They split or started to when I was four, Elle was nine. A year later, Mom moved with Elamy to Kansas, where our grandparents lived. Dad stayed in Arizona. Mom drove her car with our dog Fritz and all the houseplants packed in. Her parents followed, each of them driving diesel trucks full of stuff, our family a caravan of belongings. Elle and I tucked into Grandma's cab, leaving Dad behind, his version, or escaping to safety, hers. Dad said the divorce happened because sometimes people don't get along and mom was a real bitch. Stop bitching like your mother, he'd tell Eleni when we went to Arizona for Christmas or summer visits. Bitch, 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 he'd say in a high-pitched voice, short and quick, like bitching was silly, like being a woman silly, like bitching was just the sound some animals made, women. When we were in Kansas, Dad called to talk to us every day. Now that I no longer have a kid body, we don't speak at all. When I think of my parents, their relationship, I think of spiral galaxies colliding, some sort of bizarre golden collision, a long collision, neither of them sure who would outlast the other or why they had to, but knowing they were in it with no way to reverse gravity, a captivating, dramatic dance to the death. Apparently, galaxies collide all of the time. I probably won't ever understand why or how. Evidence. As the divorce unfolded, Mom began recording Dad's phone calls. I bury myself in those tapes, the court paperwork, the medical reports, Mom's journal. She kept it all. I found them in the laundry room after she died. I dig into our history, and it is heavy. I bury myself, and I know to be buried is to be dead. Holding on is to die, letting go is to die. I don't understand black holes, nothings, space, and transformation. I can't help but feel compelled to make sense of the past. I can't help but feel stuck. I want to be close to her. I want to be far away. How do I stay in my body, move on? I listen to hours of our reported past on the tapes, but I never finish listening to all of them. I know enough for. When are you going to die? I hear Dad ask Mom, like he couldn't wait. If you're really sick, how long are you going to last? I need to know. Vacuum. When I was a kid in a kid body, Mom used to dissect the vacuum bag. Each time the bag reached maximum capacity, she set up shop in the, in the kitchen to cut and sift. The ironing board became operating table. She laid out a plastic grocery bag to keep it clean. There wasn't room on the counter. She said the kitchen was too small, the ironing board too heavy. Elle or I would carry it to the kitchen for her. The ironing board longer than any of us were tall. 
I remembered scratched dark green metal, the ugly yellow foam under the flowery cloth top. I remembered the height of the ironing board once it was unfolded, transformed, the squeak as it opened, the struggle to lock it in place, the place where it met mom's body, splitting her in two, and above and below. Mom cut the bulging bag open with scissors, the good ones, and then in went her hands, somehow dragging our family filled out in an elegant way, her hands that played piano when she was young, her always painted fingernails, only ever reds and pinks, those fingers delicate, spreading that disgusting gray mass across the plastic grocery bag. The particles that inevitably danced out and up and beyond as she sorted through, inside the bag every time that gray crap, ashes to ashes. In her journal, Mom wrote that Dad would send Eleni to bed in the afternoon if he was in the right mood. She wrote that one time she had to crawl to the bathroom. She crawled to the bathroom bleeding had been unable to stand. Unable to walk and bleeding, Mom crawled to the bathroom. There were other times, but that one had been particularly bad, required medical attention. Over time and through my own experiences, I understood more and more what that story meant. I do my best to name everything. I try to hold on to the power of words amid their failure. I often feel like I'm looking for something, reasons for mom's suffering or some sort of release. I want to understand my family so that I don't become them. I already am them. I try to allow for and try to allow for. There are words like rape, like rape and intimate partner violence, abuse, words like hoarding, words we didn't use or ever say to each other. In the medical reports, the doctor that examined mom used words like tear, swelling, her husband needs to be more gentle. Other than neon pink Barbie shoes and plastic Barbie earring studs or rings getting sucked into our dirty nebula, I don't remember mom finding much during her vacuum bag dissections. Maybe a crumpled pony sticker, no longer sticky, a hair tie, round couple of dog food or two, perhaps a string or button, a penny. Most of what made it into the vacuum didn't seem to be anything solid. The smell of the dust was always the same. I can remember that particular stink, old, contained, a little fried. Maybe she was searching for all of Barbie's pieces, for perfection, for why things didn't go the way she wanted them to. You know what you did, she tells Dad on one of the tapes. He says if she thinks that was bad, she has no idea. Objects seemed to be a way for Mom to expand. Her body became many bodies, an ever-increasing universe of possibilities she could know and control. She said she was a collector. Bells, Barbies, bargains, depression glass. She liked shopping, keeping, giving gifts. Somehow her things were alive, a part of her. We weren't supposed to play with the bells, the boxed Barbies, the older ones, anything glass. I was never embarrassed of mom's body, her cane, or her wheelchair, but I didn't like our house, its secrets and rules, and the continual shifting of piles from one room to another. By the time I was in high school, mom and I were often fighting about objects, stuff, things. I didn't want our old toys stacked in my room, shoved in my closet, didn't want my bright pink comforter from childhood, all the Barbies, their frozen, happy faces on the shelves lining the walls of my very pink room that I did not want to be pink. I couldn't open my dresser drawers, they were too full. I argued that my room wasn't mine, how could it be? There wasn't room for me. I couldn't wait to go to college to get out of that house, away from our family clutter, both real and figurative. And yet, I kept and keep objects from our past, hold on to, to words, journals, high school planners. I have all of them still. The one from junior year when mom was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer halfway through the school year. Inflammatory breast cancer. Doctors expected her to die before I graduated. I quit track so I could come home as soon as school ended. I woke up early to give her pain pills. 
She took more during the day, more at night. My grandparents would come over while I went to school. We took shifts this way. When I got home from school, they went back to their house. They had always been there for us. Elle was in college studying to be a pharmacist, but came to mom's house on weekends when she could. The shift in cancer dictating our lives seemed sudden overnight. Maybe it was. Time changed, expanded somehow, even though we were immediately aware of how little there was. I'd always helped mom with her body, carried groceries, held doors open, pushed her wheelchair, hauled in the goods from shopping trips. Cancer was hard on her, her body. She became heavy in a way she wasn't before, more dependent on my body. Surgeries to her breast and lymph nodes changed how she could move. She'd been able to brush her hair, curl it, shower, dry off, do her makeup, put on underwear, her clothes, go to the bathroom. Cancer, its treatment, changed all of this. She lost her privacy. She told me I could write about her, her life. Cancer was at least a word we could say. Thank you, Kay. Um, so, Stephanie Leturza is a writer and attorney from Brooklyn, New York. Stephanie is the author of a poetry chapbook, The Psyche Trials, uh, Finishing Line Press 2019, and a 2018 SUCACA award recipient from the Brooklyn Arts Council. She holds a BA in English from Fordham College at Lincoln Center and a JD from <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's good school. Uh, New England, uh, uh, JD from New England Law School in Boston. Stephanie's work has appeared in La Femme Review, First Literary Review East, Avenet Siamo, uh, Literary Mama, Akashic Books, The Gathering of the Tribes, Newtown Literary, The Nottingham Review, Obra slash Artifact, Latina Outsiders, uh, Remaking Latina Identity, Pratic. Uh, magazine of contemporary writing, Raising Mothers, and elsewhere. Yeah. Follow Stephanie on Instagram, Steph3rd, S-T-E-F-3-R-D. Uh, come on, Stephanie. Thanks for being Thanks so much, uh, Matt. Thank you. Um, Kay, I really enjoyed your piece. It was lovely. Um, okay, so, um, yeah, I mean, before I read from the Psyche Trials, um, I would just really like to um, give a shout-out to Steve Cannon, um, poet and activist who unfortunately passed away earlier this month. Um, there was a lovely honorarium for Steve at the Bowery Poetry Club on the 14th of this month. Um, and so, yeah, just, yeah, I'd like to read this poem um, that Steve had published in A Gathering of the Tribes last year of mine. And it was called The Day of Dreams, January 15th, 2018, which um, was Dr. King's day, but it was also the day that Dolores O'Riordan from the Cranberries had died. So I felt it was historically relevant for various reasons. So this poem was called The Day of Dreams, January 15th, 2018. I awoke in the morning on Dr. King's day, with his voice, his dreams, pulsing in my ears on this side of the Atlantic, where the currents run far from what he imagined for America. We sang as children with our palms over our hearts of freedom, equality, all together, because that which you sing becomes forever the bedrock in the heart of collective dreams. By nightfall, Dolores O'Riordan was dead in London. Her dreams slipped into posterity, along with the rest of her songs that swelled in the sudden tides that tripped up and choked everyone who knew her voice. On a day, the barbed wind struck through slits and scars on Times Square, as relentless as the pursuit of forgotten youth, to strike all unprotected skin. Didn't I know each time I sang dreams, I chanted freedom? Quenched within the fathoms of Dr. King's vision, the promise remains their voices, merged in our collective dreams forever. Um, so I just want to read one more poem before I get into the psyche trials. Um, this is called Zoe Trope Sky, and it was featured in First Literary Review East. Um, 
and I, I think Matt and I will talk a little bit about it later. Um, and it's basically about climate change and you know um, just the reality that we are at nature's mercy, and if we don't get it together, it'll have the last word. So Zoe Trope's guy. On the night the world ended, the tragic mask moon howled inside its ocean cloud screen. The Sunday afterwards, we drove somehow to Coney Island, then stumbled along the beach, shuddering like sea creatures who'd emerged from frozen loam. The sun cast a shadow over every boardwalk crack, blinding us nauseous with each lurch of our boots. The wood buzzed and bellowed above the blood-clotted guts of discarded fish. The wonder, wheel pinned with a diminutive American flag, faced waves long ago reduced mountains to sand. Knowing its countless grins, would remain long after the amusement. Park with its places to scream into the salt-whipped wind, subsumed in the wreckage. The citizens left. That night, the clouds, shutter-shocked, looped behind the slate-screen sky. As the cold bone moon presided over ornamented streets, it knew one day would subside like pride to the ocean's rise. Okay. So um, I'm going to just you know, read some poems from the Psyche Trials, um, which Finishing Line Press released in June of this year. Um, the Psyche Trials is sort of a feminist reimagining of the myth of Psyche and Eros, um, whereby Psyche learns to love herself. Um, so yeah, it's a book that follows a sensual path from infatuation and loss to self-love and discovery. The Psyche Trials, here we go. So um, the first poem in the collection is called Eros. And it was featured in Ovunque uh, Siamo, which is the Italian Journal of American, New American Writing. Or something. Okay. Yeah. So, Eros. The way pigeons fly in an upward V, in the free pale dawn, I unbutton even my skin to become more naked. Sweat glazed like the head on a lily's pistol. I breathe inside the hollow of your insides. You breathe back. I fold myself like a flattened rose between your palms, because now words don't need to come as often, because you have found me as I have become, without history. It seems you have always been feeding me water from your mouth. I have learned the ocean is a familiar blue, mirror held up to the sky, holding the whole horizon. Um, this next poem is called Morning, um, that originally appeared in New Town Literary, um, which is you know, an homage to my hometown of Queens. Um, no, no, I'm in <laughs> Much love to us. Astoria. in particular, that's right. Sorry, I live in Brooklyn now, but my heart's always in Queens. Okay, Morning. I mistook your arm for my thigh in the morning, the way we were crossed. The inside of your ear is a stained red sun catcher and every way I twisted fit to make your pillow. We are thin and our ribs strike through our skin the same way when we speak. In your arms the green veins curl down the soft strong muscle to where I wake up cradled in your palm. The smooth plateau of my, of my belly rises and scoops inside when I breathe. Facing you, my navel is open, always, your eyes, my navel's open, your eyes open, always the ocean, where the puddles reflect my brown eyes. Our limbs are twisted, young roots sprawled across a warm earth. Um, this next poem is sort of within the realm of the loss portion of the book. Um, <laughs> the first part was more like infatuation, now it's into loss. Called Walking Around Cambridge, and it sort of deals with um, you know love triangle, but also a bit of the rivalry between New York and Boston. Go Walking around Cambridge. On my right, I walk to the window of the Ethiopian restaurant where we once loved to feed each other. Inside, our fingers warm with injera, tender sheets to gather sweet, spiced meat, each time leaving behind the frost and slate-cold sky. Remote as the chance of a fathom measuring the space between clouds. It is hours before chairs open around each nestle, woven with red and orange whirlwinds. 
I didn't notice at first the triangle, torn from a watercolor blue map, stuck to the meeting of two walls in a tight corner, or the mouth of the ebony mask carved in pointed no, below the ceiling painted rust red above the empty glasses. But this time I turned my back as if there never was a night of red wine that stained anyone's tongue, yours or hers or mine. The next poem is called Homecoming, um, also an homage to Queens and the Queensboro Bridge. Um, and anyway, it was published in San Francisco Peace and Hope um, years ago. Homecoming. The pulsing trains of my city stream the same currents through the western sand dunes in their eternal struggle to kiss the elusive red sunset. And each time the Pacific thrusts you back to me, the fireworks blossom alongside the Queensboro Bridge, you once said. It smelled like home here. You may find that you love water towers, too. Those lonely fedoras hidden on the dust-lined shelves of Times Square. Blue moons will continue to circulate across the pulsing skyline, adorned with oversized firebulbs, light flowers. Those are the mechanisms, the reasons behind the pulse inside my thumb, my whole heart, and you, my whole heart. Before you arrive at the Golden Gate, urging, urging away from Times Square, know the entire pulse of my city, my whole heart, awaits you. <clears throat> um, this next poem is called Doors, um, and there is this review uh, in the Singaporean Bound blog by poet Kendrick Liu, who's out in the UK, and he had done a review of the Psyche Trials, and he said, in part that I uh, addressed sort of the domestic politics of marriage. I think that was a really good characterization. So um, <clears throat> I thought I'd read this one. It's called Doors. In the viscous dark that adorns every room in this house, we'll leave sooner than we thought we would. I called out goodbye since you'd be gone in the morning. I found a reason to go out and buy milk, melon, chocolate, anything. One of the few things of value my father taught me to do instinctively, the way everyone else has, a tick to buy a house. As obvious as having skim milk in the fridge and a car in the garage when he never learned to drive. The neighbor said he never was a man before my mother, in the sense of use, to the point of being the one to bring home the kind of bread she deserved. So she was the one who scraped together all she saved from what would have been a computer, a house, a kept car, to buy a corporate share flat no one could tell her to leave for any lie or any reason. And when I returned to the silence still dark with my offering of milk and a honeydew melon dripping with sweet from the smell of it, I see you have avoided the dread of my key click. And when you can't hold it anymore from the single lamp lit den, I listen to the sound of opening, then closing door to closing door. Okay, so um, just got two more poems. Um, I tend to write a lot about fruit. I find fruit inspirational. Um, this poem is called Appendix Heart. Um, and I had written it when I had my, my appendix out and had some time to think. <laughs> appendix Heart. Afterwards, all that remains is a prickly pear scar. Twelve blood-red seeds plotted along a thermometer of yoked sun streaks and a purple road, stitched high above my thigh like a grin that refuses to break. In the countless convalescent hours, I meditate on the same scar that lives inside long ago songs about lost lovers in the desert space where they congregate to pick cactus fruit and wait until it's time to return. Most never return, but once in a parallel while, a voice calls from the hollow left where there used to be, an organ born to ruin, sutured only with the promise of undying love turned prickly sweet. <laughs> and finally, this is Cheering My Heart. Um, this poem was published in the Femme Review, and um, it's an homage to the Chinamaya fruit, which is heart-shaped. Um, it's also about self-love, so this is the last poem in the collection. Chinamaya Heart. When it's time to eat my heart, shaped chinimoya, custard apple. Like Eve, like Musetta, who in the libretto according to Marcello, mangia il cuore. I slide my thumbs into my widow's peak, pausing before cracking back walls of green scales, tin shiny, hard nippled, run my fingers along the wet valves of tender immaculate, 
dripping with perfume of pear and passion fruit. Then dip between my folded lips to remove every venomous seed, useless and lethal, so that all that remains is my tongue suckling sweet, fangs from my fingertips. Sticky and at times acrid, having scraped at times too close to the skin. But each time I never needed anyone to know my predilection for metamorphic creation. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, for the question, yeah, yeah, the people in your poems, uh, <laughs> the people in your poems have such a sensuous connection to their external surroundings, uh, whether it's smell, taste, fruit, salt with wind mentioned in a zoetrope sky. And uh, I'm wondering how you feel about uh, two powerful forces in the lives of urban people, the natural world, and uh, the urbanity of our cities. Mm-hmm. Do you find these contradictory, complementary, and uh, do you think the natural subsumes? Okay, so that's actually a really great question. Um, I find them complementary. I would say, um, especially you know, growing up in Long Island City and Astoria and everything, um, there is the urban landscape, and I don't, I think it's sort of unavoidable. And um, that being said, of course, in poems like Zoe Chope's Sky, I make it clear that we have to do our part when it comes when it comes to things like climate change, and we have to. You know, do our recycling and, you know, do what we can to make the planet better because at the end of the day we are at nature's mercy. So um, I feel like the earliest uh, sort of comparison that I had seen between like the urban and the natural that I had really seen in poetry was um, in the Sunflower Sutra by um, Ellen Ginsberg. I studied that in college. And I remember thinking, you know, of course, there's this image of this very sad sunflower that's like crippled beneath the weight of, you know, industry and it's very gray and it's, you know, it's causing it to die. And on the other hand, it's sort of the reality that it is, you know, this is what our life is, especially living in urban cities, sorry, urban, you know, environments where we do have, you know, the gorgeous sunsets and the East River and, you know, all of these things that they have sort of a symbiosis going on. So I would say, I think ultimately they're complimentary. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank um, that you're still surrounded by in, in the house. And um, do you feel like writing this piece and kind of being around these objects, writing about them, is a way of communicating uh, beyond words, beyond language, to um, something else, essentially, that makes any sense? So, All right, good. It's <laughs> a fun question. Thank you. It's weird to like talk to you. And yeah, yeah, you just, just pretend I'm <laughs> I think a lot of people think about books as a way, uh, I don't know who said it, but someone talked about how when you read a book, or any of the books we read, we're talking to dead people. Because most of the books that are written are written, the authors are dead by now. Um, so I think there's definitely like a way to commune with the dead through writing about it. I don't know if I'm answering your no, question. No, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's but also, the idea of objects is like a fun and endlessly fascinating road to go down. Like, what does an object mean and why? If you think of like museums, what do we put in there? What stories do they tell? How are objects alive? I don't know. Thank you. Thank, thank, uh, thank you. Thanks for coming. My apologies. Uh, so, yeah, I'll take a, a brief uh, respite, a little five minute break, and uh, we'll close the afternoon with uh, Kristen Candy Torres, having a look at hearing her reading. And uh, stick around, five minutes. Show going. Thank you. Thanks for being
Uh, Christine Candy Torres is a writer from Queens, New York. Her Pushcart Prize nominated fiction has appeared in uh, Quelly, uh, I probably mispronounced that, I'm sorry, Cosmos Avenue and Newtown Literary. Her nonfiction can be found online at Radishly, On She Goes, Fierce by Natu, and in the print anthology States of the Union, for which her piece, The Devil We Know, won the Editor's Choice Award, and that is a tremendous piece. Uh, heard her read that about a couple years ago. Her work has received support from the Jerome Foundation and Hedgebrook. She's online at ChristineKTorres.com and on Twitter at ChristineMK. Uh, come on, Christine. Thanks for being here. Um, thank you for spending your Saturday afternoon here, and thanks, Matt, for inviting me to read. Um, today, I'm going to be reading an excerpt uh, from the beginning of my novel called Strike Three. Um, I know that novel excerpts can be tricky, but bear with me. I think it will work. It's from the beginning. Okay? Uh, but just so you have an idea, the book is about, it focuses on the 20-year friendship of two young Latinas in a working-class neighborhood in Queens, New York. Um, they're used to suffering trials to prove their loyalty to one another. Yeah, Queen. Um, Sorry. They're also no Woodside. Okay, let's so, not. Let's not. Let's not. But they're Mets fans. their neighbors, um, and they're used to suffering trials to prove their loyalty to one another until um, their names are Brisma and Kelly, and then Brisma's ex-boyfriend comes back into the picture with a sexual assault charge to his name, throwing their friendship into question. So, uh, it's also told sort of non-linear, so uh, there will be two time sections. We'll start with 2006, and we'll jump to 1996. So, 2006. Me and my girls go back like quarter juice. Brian's words echoed in my ears as I walked up to the suburban front door, sweat curling the hair at my temples into tight, angry spirals that mirrored the manicured cypresses lining either side of the yard. It was confusing how proud I first felt when he described us that way to his lawyer, me and Kelly, his girls, who'd been there from jump since childhood. How proud I was to be witness to his success as a high school and then college baseball player. How lucky, I thought, to have been his first girlfriend, to hold that status entirely on my own, separate from Kelly, who so often was the one of us boot up at any given time. Behind the red-painted door in front of me, framed by clear glass panels that invited strangers to look inside, was a border beyond which I could not return. Stepping into this world where people felt entitled to the safety of unarmored windows, meant, I suspected, accepting a truth about Brian that I'd never been able to grasp entirely, like the tail of a mouse in the dark of the night as it scurries around a corner, always just a disorienting inch out of reach. I knew one thing for sure, pressing my thumb against the smooth black button of the doorbell, warm, I imagined, from scores of dinner party guests and prom dates calling with corsage and tow, scenes from a suburban life I'd only ever seen in movies. I knew Kelly was going to kill me for this. 1996. Kelly crouched over, her breath humid and sickly sweet from the Sour Patch Kids we'd stolen from the Indian Deli down the street. She pressed me down to the ground of the abandoned overgrown lot next to her family's home and whispered in my ear, you can still smell her cigarette. She was right. Above the fresh scent of overturned soil, empty Doritos bags, and cat piss heavy around the two of us, if I waited, if I searched for it, I could still smell the smoke from her mother's Virginia Slim wafting toward us on a breeze that barely tickled the heads of the tall weeds surrounding us. I blinked at her in recognition of the danger we were in, and she flopped her skinny bones next to mine with a distracted, distracted huff. My bare shoulders still flattening the patchy grass of the sloping earth behind me, I turned my head to hers and saw that her eyes were clear and focused on something straight ahead in the sky. I inched my pinky finger inside her clenched, clammy fist, and she squeezed it. Digging my jelly sandals into the gravel to lift my hips, I shifted over quietly so that no one might detect us hiding there. To our left, trucks barreled down the road and onto Queens Boulevard, rolling metal doors clanging against iron bumpers. 
In the distance, we could hear the plastic wheels of the new kid, Brian's skateboard, growing closer as he sped down the hill. How long do you think we'll have to wait? I asked, but Kelly didn't answer. I nudged my head closer to hers and searched the sky to find what Kelly had been watching. It was a plane. Two planes, in fact, crisscrossing the clouds, which from our vantage point seemed to only narrowly avoid crashing into each other. It was hypnotizing to zero in on the space between the flashing red lights underneath the aircraft, each beat taking longer than the last. I blinked and refocused my eyes on Kelly's dry, cracked bottom lip. Coming or going, I asked. Coming, she said. She'd been looking at the other plane descending into LaGuardia. From Cancun, she nodded. Her older brother had gone there on spring break a few months ago. He was the first child in either of our families that had ever flown somewhere on vacation. In fact, he was the first person we'd known to ever actually go on a proper vacation, besides Timothy, the high school senior that lived in the spare bedroom of her family's house, and from whom we were now hiding. How do you know? I whispered. I felt her bony shoulders shrug beneath me in response. I turned my attention back toward the plane that had by now nearly disappeared in the distance, and I imagined all the waves in the Atlantic Ocean would have to cross over to get to Italy, or to France, or to Greece. All the countries that I only run my skinny fingers over on the topographical globe in our elementary school library. From that shallow gra grave we dug ourselves to hide inside of in this abandoned woodside lot, it was hard to imagine tiny little people inside these tin birds, always leaving, always coming. In this neighborhood, people seemed to always be arriving anew or moving away, but never us. No, we had been planted there right from the start on Clement Moore Avenue. Her house always smelled of ferrets and melted butter. It was one of the few, sorry, it was one of the few old brick homes on the street that predated the expansion of Queens Boulevard. When the city ripped up the road, they dumped it at her grandmother's doorstep, forcing her family to build a steep set of concrete stairs to the new hill along Clement Moore. Today, the steps were chipped and worn by the generations of Irish and then Irish Colombian schoolchildren running up and away and always back down again. Inside, their sponge of a burgundy carpet hid stains created by animals and kids alike. Her mother Louise took in every stray, human and non-human alike. Sorry. Um, the hallway wallpaper was worn and curling at the edges. The rolling French pocket doors that separated Kelly's bedroom from the living room had long ago bounced off its track. The latest stray to arrive at Casa Cortez, her mother kept the name after the divorce, was Timothy. Timothy was a senior on winter break at Monsignor McClancy when his parents kicked him out for getting a blowjob from a sophomore girl in their basement. <laughs> Louise's brother, Pete, worked as a janitor at the school and offered him a room in their house to finish out the year and graduate high school. An extra broom closet that had been converted to fit exactly one twin-sized bed and a very slim dresser. Louise took to him right away, I could tell. She saved him the biggest baked potato, served him iced tea first. He was attractive, but as an only child to a single mother, I hadn't been around all that many men in my ten years of life, so the presence of any really was reason enough for excitement. Timothy had a thick neck that had tanned peach by June, and wore stuffed and balloon boots as if he already knew he was destined to work construction. He had curly blonde hair that he kept cropped close in a fade and offset with a sparkling blue stud earring. It was his birthstone, he told us. Virgo, he said, like a virgin. Do you know what that means? Kelly and I broke into a rendition of Madonna's song immediately, swinging our neon lycra-clad hips and running our hands through our frizzy hair. He smiled and his healthy pink lips curled at the sides. I would spend hours in the mirror that summer staring at my own purple-hued lips, wondering if I might be sick or deficient in some kind of vitamin, because mine weren't the same color. Sometimes he would sit with us on the back stoop of the house that overlooked a steep, fenced-in junkyard between their garage and the Entenmann's bakery outlet that sat below us on Queens Boulevard. Through the trees and ripped tires that littered this nearly vertical drop, Kelly and I could just make out when new deliveries arrived, and we'd run around the corner to buy the best of the expired marble loaves and cinnamon buns. He had a harmonica that we thought was stupid. What do you think you are, blues traveler? I asked him once while he played. While he, played. he flourished the end of his song with what looked like big, fat turkey tail hands flapping against the instrument, and strained to widen his green eyes. Kelly, her bony, narrow thighs, and hips too tiny for her hand-me-down shorts, slid in close to sit next to Timothy and rested her hand on his knee. Can I try? 
He looked at her, and for a second I could see that he was nervous. He raised a scarred eyebrow at me briefly, but then quickly flashed that healthy strawberry pink gum smile at us both. Nah, I don't think so, Kells. He tugged on her right earlobe and brushed her cheek with the back of his hand. It'd be like we were swapping spit, he emphasized. Like we were boyfriend and girlfriend, kissing or something. Kelly took her hand off of his jeans. You don't want to kiss me, do you? We both erupted in nervous laughter, and Kelly screamed gross as she leapt up from the stone steps painted a light shade of gray. She shot out across the concrete yard and swung the broken chain link gate open, and it bounced back on its hinges with a loud whine as she ran to the empty lot next door. I followed closely behind, not wanting to be left alone with Timothy, and found her in the plot of soil we dug to be our hideout, the dugout, we called it, long before we knew all that much about baseball. We began hiding there when Kelly's grandfather would visit from Medellin, all leather skin and cartoonishly twirled mustache of him, stinking of stale sweat and maple syrup every time he'd come to kiss me, open and wet on the lips. He'd do this in front of everyone, and everyone would laugh, including Louise and her seldom-seen father, Osvaldo. I hated his kisses and how he would fully graze my small breasts when he came in for his tenth hug, or pinch my chichos when he thought no one was looking. You're a woman already, Mira, he'd say, admiringly, and come in again for a kiss despite my best efforts to push his chest away. They treated it as the cute and hilarious behavior of a drunk Andean who could do no harm. Kelly couldn't stand it either, but I was never sure if she narrowed her eyes at us because she knew he was a creepy old man and couldn't protect me, or if it was because of something else. When he greeted her, he ruffled her bowl haircut with dirty fingernails and gave her a piece of passion fruit candy. Good girl, he called her. Good girl. On the third straight day of a New York City heat wave that, that July, Kelly and I retreated to the cool, damp air of her basement. After listening to old new edition cassette tapes on her boombox in the one furnished room that her older brother used to make out with girls, we decided to explore the dark corners of the cellar. Kelly and I regularly searched for love letters or mixtapes or condom wrappers, anything to piece together the intimate lives we knew the adults around us must have lived. Towards the back of the house, where twin midget doors swung out onto the concrete backyard, a washer and dryer sat underneath lines of rope hung from the exposed wooden beams of the ceiling to dry delegates. That day, we found the silk and cotton boxers that had come out of Timothy's wash hanging on the lines. Ooh la la, Kelly said, as she tugged a black pair with red kisses on it down from the clothespin on the line. She held it up in front of her face and made it dance between pinched fingers. I laughed. How the hell did he get these kind of boxers, I asked. You think his mom bought them for him? His mom don't buy him shit, she said, looking up at the line for another one. Do you think he's cute? Kelly rolled her eyes as she ripped another silk pair down and threw it on my face. I tore it off and tossed it back at her. That's disgusting, yo. What, she said, cocking her brow. I heard you say you thought he was cute. Did not. I hung, up the clothes. I hung on the clothesline with my right arm. I asked if you thought he was. Kelly ran her hands along the line of boxers as if she owned them all, as if she were a rich woman admiring her art collection. Besides, I shrugged. Even if I did think he was cute, it's not like I want to rub my face in his crotch. Kelly sighed, tired of me. I could tell. I got the sense oftentimes that I was too dumb for her or too prudish, too naive for sure. What's the big deal, you baby? She gestured toward the washing machine. It's not like they're dirty. She ripped down a cotton pair with a silk screen print of Porky Pig on the book and threw it at me, but this time I caught it. She smiled and opened her arms wide, grabbing onto the lines overhead, and ran her face across each pair of shorts, one long motorboat through a sea of his unmentionables. I laughed at her audacity, her brazen disregard for other people's personal property. I wished I could be more like her. What are you doing? His voice was deep and reverber reverberated against the low ceiling of the cellar, stopping my laughter cold. Timothy stood behind us with an empty laundry basket at his hip. His face was hard. I couldn't, I couldn't quite read if he was mad at us, but there was heat in his eyes an excited self-awareness of the scene he just walked into. I looked at Kelly, but she didn't look scared. She looked amused, defiant, as if she'd been expecting this. Laundry, she shrugged, a blue and orange pair of Mets boxers hanging off her fingertip. He snatched it from her and threw it in the plastic basket at his hip. Just as quickly, he grabbed her wrist in his thick fist and twisted it behind her. 
Kelly was so short, she only came up to his chest. He pulled her close to him. You want to do my laundry? He asked, his voice low and intimate. It wasn't the same voice he used when he played his harmonica for us on the stoop. Kelly didn't look at me or at him, but at the line of clothes above her. She didn't seem shocked or afraid at all. This was no there was nothing new or novel about this situation. It seemed like a scene that she'd acted out plenty before. Timothy turned to raise his eyebrows at me. You want to feel my boxers? He dropped the laundry basket onto the concrete floor, and the sound echoed throughout the basement. Underneath it, I could hear the metal of his belt buckle coming undone. His jeans dropped to his ankles, and in one smooth motion, he snubbed Kelly's head down, smashing her face against his actual crotch, just as she'd been doing with the boxers on the line. I gasped and took a step back, my bare heel banging into the empty washing machine behind me. It was like a gong, the sound of its quivering hollow walls echoing through the house and snapping Kelly out of her dim fog. She punched Timothy's hips away from her with both fists. He staggered back, but trained his hungry eyes on me instead. I saw you, he said, his right arm outstretched as he reached for me and stepped out of one of his pant legs on the floor. You wanted this too. His fingers barely grazed my neck before I ducked out past him and ran for the far back door. He couldn't chase me with his jeans dragging at his feet, and I made it up the warped wooden steps and out into the yard where Louise sat with a freshly lit Virginia Slim. I ran past her and past the broken fence, losing one of my chunky jelly sandals in the process. When I got to the dugout, I hugged my knees at the far edge of the dirt lot where the tall weeds grew strong and thick from the ground. It wasn't until Kelly followed shortly thereafter, trailed by Louise's coughing wails for us to come back and apologize for being rude to Timothy, that I realized I was still clutching a laundered pair of his underwear. Kelly lay panting, flat back on the ground next to me. Has he done that before? She cut her eyes at me. There I was again, so silly, so naive. Does he do it often? She chewed on this for a while, propped up on one elbow, but her eyes still on mine, sizing me up. We practice, she said. Practice what? I asked. Shh. She clamped her perpetually wet palm over my mouth. Kissing, she said. We practice kissing. It's like a game. I stared at her, not comprehending what she was saying, even though on some level I had suspected it for some time. But he's almost 18, I said. Kelly lowered herself back onto the ground, and I could feel the wall go back up between us. I was still too dumb, too innocent to ever understand. If we listened, then, we could just make out Louise apologizing to Timothy and offering to buy him new clothes. Occasionally, she would shout out in our general direction, Come get your shoe! Or you lost your shoe, dingbat! And she'd laugh, and we'd hear Timothy laugh, too. I dug into the cool soil with my bare toes, with the bare toes of my non-sandaled foot, and I imagined myself as a worm crawling into the earth. Suddenly, Kelly scrambled to her knees and snatched the boxers that I'd been gripping in my fist. She pawed at the ground like a dog with a bone, and I didn't know what else to do but help her. I wanted to bury this moment and forget it as soon as possible, but Kelly, judging by the crazed look in her eyes, was burying treasure. To her, somehow, this was a prize she had won. I, I helped her, and I clawed so deep that I was cleaning soil out from under my nails for a week afterward. We lay back down with the fresh earth panting. I tried to synchronize my breathing with hers so that our lungs functioned as one, one beast hiding in the bush. I squeezed her wrists so hard I felt ligaments press against the bone beneath her skin, but I tried to still my nerves and match her pulse with mine. If we could share a soul, I felt, a body, if I could give her mine, we'd survive. We'd make it through. She turned to look at me and shook her head. You can still smell it, she said, motioning back toward the house with a puckered mouth. Her cigarette. Thank you. So, um, the setting of the story is uh, so visceral, and I thought you did an amazing job setting the reader up in the oddly particular angles uh, unique to this type of neighborhood. I mean, it's, um, especially thinking in a moment in the backyard when the girls look down, almost like looking down to another floor uh, to see the end of this delivery at the bakery. And uh, my question is, um, did you always feel like your neighborhood or writing a neighborhood very much like your neighborhood uh, would be interesting to write about in prose. And uh, what's the process been like capturing it uh, so vividly in, uh, in something like this?
Um, I mean, the answer is yes. I've always thought it'd be interesting to write about uh, because it's uh, the setting is what I knew growing up. Uh, I think that a lot of for centuries, uh, white male writers have written about what they've known, uh, the settings that they've known, and maybe they're different than uh, Junkyard <laughs> behind the Edgemen's outlet. Um, you know, that's not exactly what I grew up with, but um, I thought it was important um, to write the story that I wanted to read growing up. Uh, you all know that Toni Morrison quote. Uh, I wanted little brown girls and queens to read something where they might see themselves represented and their experience represented. So, so I wrote about it. And then, <laughs> what is the? Oh, how has the experience been? Yes. Uh, like a really cool time travel. Uh, I I read somewhere recently that um, sometimes writing a novel is like freezing time almost. So it's been cool to revisit settings that I'm familiar with growing up and writing these scenes feels almost like I'm choosing uh, my own adventure. <laughs> um, I love those books. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite ending of a Choose Your Adventure was uh, one time it's stuck in a window uh, I can't move and it was the end. So I have one more question. Um, I was so fascinated by the interaction between the three of them in the yard by the laundry line. Um, it was so complex and exactly like how really great fiction should, should read. And uh, that line, or that question he asked, and do you want to do my, my laundry, um, I feel like it would sound and feel different, you know, spoken by an older man, you know, sitting on a ratty couch, maybe addressing his wife in 20 or 30 or 40 years or something like that. But because he's only 18 and the girls are even younger, there's a sense of danger and flirtation to go along with his boundary-crossing veneer. So I felt like it was fascinating to see the portrayal of younger people falling into social and gender roles, maybe. I don't know if you feel that way. That's how I read it. You might totally feel different about that. But it's with the naive innocence of kind of playing a game, basically. And uh, I'm curious, do you think that could be true? And how much of a role did your own memories and childhood ad slash adolescent observations play making this feel so real, so layered, and so nuanced? Um, I guess I'll ask, answer the second one first. Yeah. I had plenty of creeps to call from. There's <laughs> 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 plenty of creepy old men in my life. Uh, older men, anyway. Um, so that wasn't too hard. Uh, but about the question, do you want to do my laundry? Um, I mean, that's interesting that you mentioned the gender roles. I don't, I didn't yeah. consider that so much. For me, it was a lot of boundary crossing. So for him, uh, for the girls, it's the allure of tracing around and being somewhere you shouldn't be, and that's normal boundary pushing for children, uh, for young girls that are also leaning into and exploring their own sexuality and what that means to be with the, um, the boys. For him, it's totally inappropriate, and he's exploiting his position of power over the younger girls. Uh, and so him saying, do you want to do, you want to do my laundry is very clearly a threat that the girls understand as a threat in that moment. And I think that anyone who has experienced life as a young girl would understand that that's, that's a threatening situation. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to explore this and at a young age, I wanted to write about characters at a young age exploring these dynamics because it was important to me to try to understand how we get to a point where adults, adult women, adult survivors also protect men that have been accused of sexual assault. So like this, the grooming process at large happens to us from the beginning. Um, in, in insidious ways and in apparent ways. Yeah, so that's what, that's, that's where the inspiration, that's how I got to this scene and was setting this up for the characters. Thank you so much. Thank you. Once again, uh, thank you so much for being here. This was another fantastic turnout. Great reading, and uh, thank you. Uh, our next one will be 
I could just pull out my phone, because I never know uh, <laughs> off the top of my head. We meet the first Saturday of each month. Uh, so it'll be September 7th. Um, we do have Brandon Lorber and Ada uh, Zillions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you know Brandon. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, so yeah, we, we actually did that one booked. I'll be, I'll be posting all about it. And uh, once again, thanks so much uh, for being so open as well and what you read and how you answered questions. And that's, that's just, I couldn't ask for, for a better group of readers uh, for this month. So uh, have a great day and uh, see you next time. Bye. <laughs>